3: Welcome to Forum from KQED, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. As President Trump responds to calls to end systemic racism with demands for a law and order and warns of an invasion of the suburbs if he's not re-elected, many Americans feel the country is deeply divided and broken. Community leader and lawyer Zach Norris attributes this division to a framework of fear that has grown between fellow Americans. His new book is We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. Zach Norris joins us to discuss the book and to outline his vision for public safety. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in for Mina Kim. Since protests against racism began back in May, there's been a feeling that a major shift is underway, an opportunity to root out some of the nation's longstanding systemic inequities and to enact lasting change. Our guest today has some thoughts on what a more just and safe society could look like. Zach Norris is the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and the co-founder of Justice for Families, a national alliance working to end youth incarceration. Norris also helped build California's first statewide network for families of incarcerated youth and led a successful effort to close five youth prisons in the state. His new book is We Keep Us Safe, Building More Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. Welcome back to Forum, Zach Norris.
0: Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
3: Yeah. So I wanted to start out with uh, zooming out just a bit. In your book, you outline that one of the ways that we got here, here being mass incarceration, extreme racial and economic inequality, us versus them mentality is a framework of fear. And, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing the federal law enforcement being deployed to cities could also be a part of that list now. How do you define this framework? How does it function and how long do you believe it's functioned in the U.S.?
0: Unfortunately, the framework of fear has really functioned in the United States since its inception. Uh, My grandfather's grandfather was sold uh, downriver from uh, Richmond, Virginia, into Mississippi. Um, He was boarded onto a ship at uh, seven, eight years old, uh, while his mother cried uh, on the wharf as he was being shipped away. This idea that some people are less than because of the color of their skin or their gender has been uh, engendered inside the United States since its inception. But I think a lot of what we're seeing now really accelerated the past, I'd say, 40 years. And I know the last four years have, hard, have been hard, but I think the last 40 years have led us to where we are legislators effectively took a wrecking ball to our economy and our society, um, making possible the ruin we find ourselves in. And you know, if we wanna ask ourselves what happened, well, we allowed the ongoing scapegoating of communities, um, black women to be described as welfare queens, their children to be described as super predators. And when the wrecking ball came to remove Uh, welfare supports, it didn't just hurt black folks, it hurt black, brown, and white folks alike. When the prisons were built up and built up and built up in California, we had 23 new prisons built from 1980 to 2000, and just one new university. And that hurt all folks. It hurt black and brown folks, black and brown people first and worst. but it really created the environment where uh, we saw uh, a real... um, Uh, decimation of our social safety net and an expansion of this criminal drag net. And so now we have, you know, 53 cents of every federal dollar goes to military. And, um, you know, the lion's share of resources in every city and county across the country go to policing and probation. And uh, as a result, as you said, we have mass incarceration like we've never seen some 5% of the world's population in the United States, but 25% of the world's prisoners, 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's pollution and CO2s. So we've treated people and planet as disposable. And now we see the impacts of that a new shameful 25%, 25% of the world's COVID cases because we haven't built the public health infrastructure to actually keep us safe
3: right and and that calls um, to mind also the architects of anxiety that you that you right. mentioned in the book and I I had mentioned in uh, earlier that in our billboard that the president tweeted, you know, the suburban housewife would be voting for him because they want safety and says that if Biden were elected, there'd be an invasion of the suburbs. So we're seeing that kind of language. Can you talk more about the architects of anxiety? Yeah. And because yeah. you also cite that violent, even though violent crime has gone down greatly since the early 90s, the fear of crime has mostly stayed the same.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of the things that is really interesting is that crime is at historic lows and violent crime in particular, um, but our anxieties are at historic highs. And so some of what I was grappling with in the book is what is crime and what is harm? Because it's important to understand that those things are Um, that there's some overlap, like in a Venn diagram, but there's also this um, larger suite of harms that are being unaddressed by our criminal court system. And Donald Trump is really a masterful architect of anxiety because what he does is really points to um, what we've defined um, narrowly as crime and points to particular communities as being responsible for those crimes, black and brown communities, while at the same time he is hiding a larger suite of harms that he himself has been responsible for, but also that are pervasive in society. And So what do I mean by that? I mean that um, we've tended to focus on crime in the streets rather than crime in the suites, right? So we have an opioid epidemic uh, in this country, right? Um, we haven't looked at the, the role or held accountable big pharma and pharmaceutical companies for their role in producing and marketing opioids to communities across the country. We haven't held accountable the FDA for actually um, supporting and allowing those drugs to go to market. And so that's an example of the way in which crime in the suites of power are often ignored. Meanwhile, folks on the street corners are put away for selling those same uh, same si- or similar substances. And so this um, dynamic really for me is indicative of What I think we need to now understand as two different visions of safety. One is a he keeps us safe lie of we of would be dictators. And those um, persons are the architects of anxiety. They say, you know, don't don't trust. It's they do what abusers do effectively. This is an abusive lie, because what do abusers do? They say don't trust your neighbor, don't trust your girlfriend, don't trust your mom, only trust me, all the while they're actually causing the harm in the house. Um, And similarly, Donald Trump has said, don't trust your neighbor around the corner, don't trust your neighbor at the border, don't trust your neighbor in distant lands even though those folks want the same things for their families that we want for ours. And meanwhile, he he is hiding the harms of inequality, hiding the harms of climate change and using even a global pandemic to, to run the same playbook of scapegoating entire communities, rather than really addressing fr- front and center what should be seen as a public health issue with real public health solutions. So this he keeps us safe lie really makes us actually less safe.
3: And you say in the book, too, that the answer to safety is always closer rather than farther away. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the book is called We Keep Us Safe. And the reason I titled the book We Keep Us Safe is because I wanted people to not think about the term public safety, but to really um, remember what a time when they felt safe. So if I ask you to remember a time when you felt safe, oftentimes what I hear from people is, I I feel safe in my faith community, or I feel safe around my partner, or I feel safe around my family, be they biological or chosen. Oftentimes, safety is about relationship. It's about being held, having the resources we need, um, and being held accountable. So like when my grandmother would hold my hand and I can remember fondly the way she held my hand with two hands, one hand just kind of grasping my hand and the other hand, she would just tap my little fingers. And it was this reminder that she had my back. She had my back, um, so that I could do well, but also if I did something wrong, she would remind me of my errors and and help me to do better. And so we've really lost that sense of relationship when it comes to safety. We've uh, instead invested in an idea of safety that is about separation, that is about removing the so-called bad guys and putting them very far away. Meanwhile, we know that people who are put in prisons more often than not come back to their communities. And if they are, are, are coming back worse off, that is actually worsening a cycle of poverty and incarceration. So really um, what I'm trying to lift up in this book is that we can adopt public health approaches to public health issues. And by doing so, really create greater safety for each and every one of us.
3: And that sounds like that fits into this culture of care that you mentioned, especially, and that's a beautiful image of you, the child with your grandmother, um, just getting the image of like a culture of care. So what does that look like kind of embodied in a society, especially in contrast to the traditional approach to crime and punishment, for example?
0: Absolutely. I want to give you an example, which is the story of Richmond, California. Um, around the turn of the century, right here in the Bay Area, Richmond had one of the highest per capita murder rates um, in the country. And in 2005, the city council had de- declared a state of an emergency. The, the whole city was up in arms about what to do. Um, parents didn't feel like they could take their kids to the park. Uh, shopkeepers were closing shop early. Um, and folks were like, what are we going to do about this? Um Devon Bogan had run the mentoring center in Oakland, and he proposed somewhat of a novel solution. He said, "Um, I want to create a fellowship program for the 30 young men who the police have identified that they believe are responsible for these homicides. Now, they couldn't make the case for a variety of reasons. The police could not. He said, I want to engage these young men. And what he did was what no other solution had proposed. And that was actually talking with these young men. He said, I wanna offer you daily positive contact in the form of mentorship, travel opportunities to get outside of the Bay Area and outside of the, the iron triangle that has defined um, your experience for so long. I wanna um, also, you know, provide you with a monthly stipend so you have some money in your pocket to support yourself and your family and of course you know the the media caught wind of this really early on and the questions Devone got were like wait a minute you're paying people not to shoot each other Mm -hmm. Um, and he got a lot of pushback but the results early results were promising and so this city stuck with this program and the remarkable thing was that um These young men, when they were offered these travel opportunities to go outside of California, they were told that if they went, they had to go with young men from rival neighborhoods. And so through that experience, um, really the walls between them came down and the world in front of them opened up. And not just for these young men, right, but for the entire city of Richmond, because this meant that mothers and grandmothers could now take their kids to the park. And shopkeepers were taking their um, keeping their their stores open for longer. And so the city manager really described how this really reinvigorated the economic life of the city as well. And so for me, that is an example of what it looks like when we move away from a framework of fear that is based in suspicion, that just sees uh, people responsible for violence as the problem, rather than really looking to the root of what's causing that violence, and actually seeking to transform it and interrupting cycles of poverty, incarceration, and violence.
3: And so there's another story that you mentioned in your book that's in Richmond, but first I want to go to Michigan and then bring it back to Richmond. You Mm -hmm. might know what I'm Mm -hmm. alluding to. Um, So You've been involved with working to end youth incarceration for more rehabilitative practices and I wanted to to get your thoughts on the recent case in Michigan where it was 15 year old Grace had been in a juvenile justice um, or juvenile detention facility since May for skipping her school's online coursework um, and just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the case ProPublica reported this week that Grace's case is officially closed she was released um, at the end of last month. Um, but prior to release, the judge had denied a motion to release her sooner and was highlighting previous violent conflicts that she'd had with her mother as the reason for detention. And the mother had actually notified a caseworker that Grace wasn't following the terms of her probation. But she was looking for help and support for her daughter because um, Grace has ADHD. And this story really struck a chord and got national news attention demonstrations. And it struck me how similar the story is to one you tell in the book about yeah. a young man named Darrell. Can you speak to Grace's case and also share a bit of Darrell's story and how you hope stories like theirs would go in a culture of care?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a shameful example of the way in which this framework of fear operates because rather than seeing, you know, a mother who was desperately reaching out for support, um, you know, I have two daughters who are 8 and 10 years old and I think in my worst moments. Um, I would not be proud of, 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 of either how my kids were responding to me or how I was responding to them. And here is a mom who's saying, I need some support. And rather than getting that support, she got um, a criminal justice system, a criminal court system, more geared towards um, Scapegoating Grace and um, labeling Grace and putting her onto uh, that school-to-prison pipeline track, um, and and that that track um, can end with tragic outcomes. You mentioned Darrell Feaster; um, he was someone who was also at odds with his father. Um, this is closer to the turn of the century, um, and I. Um, Uh, learned about Durrell's case through his father, Alan Feaster. He um, first was just, you know, cutting school, getting in trouble. He got sent into a group home um, that was, you know, hundreds of miles from his dad. He and someone else stole a car basically to try to drive back to Stockton, where he was from. He was sent to the California Youth Authority Youth Prison System as a result of that car theft. And he spent the greater part of 18 months on solitary confinement for 23 hours a day for weeks and months on end. And he and his cellmate, Dion Whitfield, um, is believed that they committed suicide inside of their cell. Um, and the most. Uh, so so I know, you know, how stories like Grace can end. Um, I, I also know that the families who have been seen as pariahs inside of the justice system, the juvenile justice system should be seen as partners because families like Durrell uh, like Alan Feaster were fighting desperately just to stay in contact with their kids inside of the California youth authority, youth prison system. But they were the same families who had been derided as the welfare queens and, and worse. And so we launched a campaign Um, to really organize those families, families of incarcerated youth inside of the California Youth Authority youth prison system. And they said, we want to close these youth prisons down. And as an organizer, as someone who had just come out out of law school, I was like, wow, that's really radical. I'm not sure that we can do that. Uh, There was a lot of fear that I had. There was a lot of fear that legislators had of these families. But as we went back week after week and month after month, as a handful of families grew to over a thousand families across the state, soon legislators weren't able to ignore us anymore. And they started to listen to what we were saying, that families were traveling 250 miles on average to see their kids, that three out of four young people were being rearrested one year after their release, partly because they have been subjected to these incredibly inhumane conditions and not prepared for any kind of support upon release. And over nearly a decade long campaign, in conjunction with a lot of organizations, We were able to close five of eight youth prisons across the state of California. And guess what crime did, youth crime did during that same period? It continued to decline. And so there is this idea that when we promote human rights, we um, undermine public safety. And actually the opposite is true. When we promote human rights, we actually enhance public safety and that's what we uh, thankfully have started to see and there's a groundswell of, of kind of attention to cases like, Grace, like Grace's which is important and absolutely necessary so that we can continue to close these youth prisons down and actually invest in the kinds of support that will ensure that young people are successful.
3: We're talking about what communities can do to foster security and well-being without relying on the criminal justice system with Zach Norris, executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and author of We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. Do you think community-based changes could chip away at systemic racism and other structural problems? Do you have examples from your community you'd like to share with us? Give us a call with your questions and comments at 866 733 That's 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, I also just wanted to get uh, your, your comments on, you know, just what's going down um, with the state prisons and, and the state of COVID um, in California. As of August 10th, 53 incarcerated people have died from coronavirus, um, the majority at San Quentin and the prison in Chino. And the calls are growing louder, you know, that a criminal justice sentence or a criminal sentence shouldn't mean a death sentence. Just want to get your thoughts on that briefly before the break.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, really shameful that we have um, people in prison in the state of California, many of whom are our elders who have been in prison for decades, who have already health conditions that threaten their health. And rather than expediting um, uh, and really drastically reducing the number of people in prison, we've seen um, insufficient efforts. We've seen um, uh, a continuing public health crisis inside of prisons that is allowing COVID-19 to effectively be a death sentence for folks inside. Um, And I believe that um, there are so many folks inside of our prison system who should be seen as assets who could be coming out to mentor young people, who could be coming out to support um, uh, in building a public health approach to safety, whose wisdom is desperately needed in, in streets in Oakland, um, in streets across, uh, across California. And so we have been pushing the governor um, to uh, use his power and. to to actually release people, to ensure that people who have, uh, you know, just a a, a pittance of time remaining on their sentence are are let free. And we haven't seen enough uh, as yet, and we will continue to push until um, we actually uh, see the kind of change that is necessary.
3: More with Zach Norris, Executive Director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights after the break. You're listening to Forum, I'm Ariana Prale and Fermina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Arianna Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking about what communities can do to foster security and well-being with Zach Norris, Executive Director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and author of We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. And we're also talking with you, our listeners. So let me welcome our first call, Rosemary from Livermore. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. Hi. What's your comment or question for, for Zach?
4: The comment is, um, is certainly that hearing Mr. Norris talk about a culture of care and essentially to I think it, I think that it's been described to me as a strength model as well, it, to just listen to people who are the children adults um, and say, what do you want? What do you need? And in my case, I wanted to for starters, not be institutionalized at the age of 11 in a juvenile reformatory where there were 30 day lockdowns every time I tried to escape a, a molesting um, staff person. Anyway, so, oh. and run away. And, and so, when after, at the age of 70, from, from starting at the age of 11, being taken away from my mother to the age of 70, then the things that would have been important that Mr. Norris has pretty much um, cataloged in a really, really good way is that what I wanted was not to commit crimes. I wanted to be employed and educated. That's what I wanted more than anything. I admired people who who worked hard and who um, were educated, but I couldn't get there. And so from the age of 11 to 17, it's that's how long it took. And I had one social worker, finally. All these institutions that I cycled through with the 30-day isolation, no running water, no toilets, At any rate, after all of that, she said, Rose, this is what you need. I'm going to get you a Social Security card because you keep saying you want to work, you want to work, and you want to be independent. So she got me a Social Security card. She's the only person who ever did anything like that. And so from that point on, do you know she made such a difference in my life? And I went on to get a master's degree. Um, It took a long time. And to be a really, really contributing part of, of uh, at that time I was in Boston it was wonderful it was just wonderful I turned my life around and, and, uh, and now I'm disabled after uh, at the age of 70 I can't walk very well so here I am no housing and uh, it meant everything for that woman to just acknowledge mm-hmm. my dilemma and say you want to work Let's make that possible. At that point, I was 16, and I could have worked. So, um, again, I ran away, but kind of with her blessing, <laughs> very quietly with her blessing. I got a job, and I called the um, the uh, last institution that I was in and said, here's the deal. I want to be an emancipated um, juvenile. I have a job. I got my GED, which was hard because my school was so interrupted. And uh, went on from there to get a better job and then a better job and then try community college and fail miserably because I had no idea what that meant. But you know something, the successes were there. They turned me around. He's right. He's absolutely right. My God, just offer something that is, is, offer up something that is that plays to the strength of the individual who um yeah are feeling very thank disenfranchised.
3: you thank you so much rosemary for sharing your story zach norris do yeah. you have any thoughts you i want just want to
0: also thank you rosemary for your courage um and coming on and calling and just your determination um i think that you're uh, absolutely an inspiration um and uh appreciate the call i couldn't agree more it's just like when I talk with um, families, when I talk with young people, uh, too often they're like, where was this attention uh, for me when I uh, uh, was uh, struggling, um, before I was struggling? And so the the kinds of supports that you describe, I think, are just absolutely uh, necessary and, and should be the status quo.
3: All right, let's go to another caller. Michael in Oakland is next. Michael, welcome.
5: Hi, thank you very much. Um, I really wanted to talk briefly or promote briefly a book that was written by a a man who started uh, in the California Youth Authority. Of course, he started earlier than that. I mean, he graduated into the California Youth Authority and he wrote this incredible book. It's called I Cried, You Didn't Listen. And uh, it... Chronicles his experiences growing up in the youth authority in the 1950s and early 60s. And it really lays out the kind of uh, practices and thinking that led to, of course, his uh, almost entire life spent in prison, very few times out. I, I befriended him early on because I, I'm a writer uh, in the criminal justice field and still do writing workshops in juvenile halls around the state. And I can tell you that this book, I Cried You Didn't Listen, though, written years ago, is still very much in demand by young people locked up. um, And uh, I I urge everyone to read it. The writer, whose name is Dwight Abbott, passed away last week in the California Medical Facility in Stockton. Uh, we haven't got details on whether it was COVID-related or what, what the cause was. It's hard to get information from CDCR. But in any case, I, I strongly, uh, as someone who's spent a long, long time working within the criminal justice system as a, an advocate and a writer, uh, I urge everyone to try to get a hold of this uh, remarkable book, I Cried You Didn't Listen.
3: Great, thank you for sharing that resource, Michael. Zach Norris, did you have any thoughts on? Thank you for your
0: work. Yeah, I just wanna say thank you for doing that work in terms of uh, writing with young people inside of these institutions. It's absolutely necessary. Also would lift up the work of the Beat Within that does similar work. Um, one of the things that I try to do in the book, We Keep Us Safe, is actually imagine three different stories um, at the end of the book and how they would be different if we had adopted a culture of care instead of operated from a framework of fear. And so I hope that you know, folks um, inside and outside find um, an opportunity to see themselves and to see others um, and see, to see the difference that taking a public health approach to safety would make in all of our lives.
3: And in the book, you quote psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk, who says traumatized human beings recover in the context of relationships. And obviously Mm -hmm. hearing Rosemary's story just brings that right to mind. Right. And this is another area, though, where we're seeing more strain, you know, increased isolation and loneliness with the pandemic at a time when there's also increased exposure to trauma, whether it's through the videos of police killings or the other trauma of losing a loved one or a job um, to covid. How do we recover, you know, using that that framework, how do we recover within this context?
0: Yeah, I really saw that when I was organizing with Lourdes Duarte and Joyce Cook and Ruth Whitmore and so many mothers and grandmothers who were experiencing real trauma from not knowing if their kids were safe inside uh, California Youth Authority now called the Division of Juvenile Justice, um, as they came together, talked with one another, um, shared their fears and concerns, and also active got active and went to the Capitol together and told their stories to the people who had the power to make change, I saw their, their lives change. Um, and oftentimes, I saw the young people who were involved in that campaign. Also, their lives change. And so I think relationship is key to uh, recovery from trauma and can have a huge impact as we are um, active now. The governor is saying that he wants to close the remaining three youth prisons. And we want to make sure that that's done right and done in a way that actually lifts up the solutions that come from communities rather than just shift responsibility to juvenile halls across the state, which are really just kind of mini youth prisons. Um, so, how do we do that in the context of COVID? Um, I think that we have to use all of the tools available to us. Some of those are technological. Some of those are musical. Um, you know, uh, taking a page from uh, folks in Italy and elsewhere who were playing instruments to one another. I think music can be healing. Um, and so, I think w- we should not pooh all of the ways in which young people are coming together. Certainly we want to make sure everybody's socially distant um, and wearing masks and staying safe, but I think there's ways that you can still abide by those protocols and, um, and you know, share space with one another through music, um, through through um, online means and, and, and otherwise. And I've seen you know, people coming out and doing um, um, demonstrations outside of San Quentin, for example, socially distant, sometimes in their cars, really calling attention to um, the fact that people are dying inside of prisons and people are dying outside of prisons. And if we don't solve COVID inside of prisons, we can't expect to solve it outside of prisons. And so what I see in that, and people really um, risking their lives is that, it it, to be outside is also that they are attempting to rescue humanity because so many of these powerful people are saying you know just go back to work go back to school the economy is the most important and i think people are really rejecting that and saying no our lives are the most important and i think that's why um, black lives matter as a mantra and as a movement um, uh, convener has been so powerful because it's saying Those folks who have been at the bottom of this caste system inside of the United States, as Isabel Wilkerson describes it, those folks' lives matter. Our lives as Black people matter inside of this country and inside of the globe.
3: Let's go to another caller. Lisa in Oakland, you're up next. Welcome.
2: Good morning. I just want to say thank you so much, Zach. Um, I've read the book and I really enjoyed it. Um, I have a question yeah, and I really admire the work that you've done with the Ella Baker Center, um, both from like Books Not Bars to um, the school, school like working on the school prison, the pipeline. My question is around survivors, um, and specifically, what advice do you have for survivors of either intimate violence, like domestic violence, or sexual assault who um, believe in restorative justice however who think that restorative justice often puts the onus of confronting their abuser fully on the victim and what type of um, advice do you have as far as I'm a black immigrant who lives in Oakland and I've been involved in movement work for a long time and um, you talked a lot about relationships in the book and I found that um, where the rubber hits the road is the way that most survivors and victims deal with sexual assault is to have um, normal trauma responses, which can be very uh, difficult for people around them to, um, you know, when you tell someone you've been raped, there's a look of like shame on the other person's face. Right. Or there's a look like you can feel the other person's um, discomfort with that. Right. And that yeah. often leads to mass, Isolation for the survivor, yeah, right? And so especially in movement spaces um, when people have been assaulted by other people in the movement and maybe people within positions of power, right? And when you um, speak out about people in positions of power in the social justice world, it can be very difficult to get justice because people like me, I'm black, I'm an immigrant, um, I do Black Lives Matter work, I don't believe in involving the personal state or the police, Um, but then that causes me to not look like a victim because people will say, well, why didn't you report it to the police, right? And it also makes me wary of restorative justice in which I then have to confront my rapist who has a lot more power than me.
3: Thank you for those comments, Lisa. Zach Norris, your response? No,
0: I really appreciate that question and your courage. Uh, I... um, don't have all the answers i would you know uh encourage you to check out the work of insight women of color against violence um and i describe in my book um some of the real harms that the architects of anxiety want us to uh push under the rug um and one of those real harms is patriarchy and um my uh assessment is that um you know, as you noted, um, restorative justice um, has to be structured in ways that actually equalize power. And so one example I would give you in terms of ongoing sexual assault um, and uh, a, a proactive step to, to use restorative justice in a different way was um, at a restaurant um, where um the uh, employees of that restaurant really uh, confronted the ownership in a collective way, in a way that was about um, really trying to equalize the power and then to create um, uh, a, a, an accountability plan that that person had to follow through with. Um, and as you mentioned, if it's a one-to-one situation, sometimes the the power imbalance can be such that, um, it, it, it doesn't really set up that circle for success. So what I would offer is that restorative justice is, you know, and I'm not an expert, but my understanding and talking to folks who are, is that restorative justice isn't really a one size, all, one size fits all solution, but rather that you have to really structure it such that it is, um, equalizing the power and creating a dynamic where the person who's been harmed um, feels safe and empowered to participate and is really setting the terms in terms of their engagement and and how they need the other person to show up Um, and if successful you know restorative justice can be um an example of how we build greater accountability in our society as a whole, because it isn't supposed to just be the person who's caused harm and the person who's been harmed. It's supposed to be the circle of support for each of those individuals, such that everyone in that circle is really asking themselves a hard question of what could I have done differently to prevent this harm from happening? And by building that muscle of accountability, I think we're starting to build The the accountability muscles we need to hold elected officials and other persons in power really accountable for the actions that they're taking. And that is so absolutely necessary in this moment as we see um, this uh, would-be dictator um, in office uh, leveraging patriarchy and racism um, to scapegoat entire communities and really to undermine democracy itself.
3: Thanks again, Lisa, for your call. Um, that's, and speaking just about restorative justice and, and kind of some of the meta in terms of our, the, the nation, you did mention r- truth and reconciliation committees in the book. Um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee has proposed legislation to create the U.S.'s first commission on truth, racial healing and transformation. What role would a commission like that play in the larger vision for more secure and inclusive communities that you're outlining?
0: Well, it really depends. I think that um, truth and reconciliation commissions can work or can be spectacular failures. And I think um, one of the reasons that we have tried to promote the term truth and reinvestment um, uh, is to say that, yes, we need to reckon with a long history of of racial injustice and patriarchy in this country and to um, address that through policies and practices and reparations, but it really has to be about reinvestment and not just reconciliation. Because what happened in South Africa, I think, was an example of the way in which um, not really dealing with the underlying economic structures um, made it such that um, that process fell short of its aim of real liberation and opportunity for Black people inside of South Africa. Um, and I think we would want to uh, build reconciliation c- commissions across the country and cities and counties um, and at the national level. But we would also want to make sure that um, this massive divestment from um, structures that have been used to um, accelerate the morbidity and mortality of, of black and brown people, policing and prisons, and the investment in the kinds of structures that keep all communities safe from housing, uh, education, employment, the things that that Rosemarie mentioned. Um, those are, that kind of reinvestment I think is necessary coupled with really examining our, our country's history.
3: Right, let's go to our next caller. Rob in El Cerrito, you're on.
0: Hey, thanks for taking my call um yeah my my questions uh for your guest uh you know I've noticed that people even those that that hold a you know a restorative justice mentality they they engage in this process of othering our incarcerated folks or or previously incarcerated folks, like this idea that you know
2: there's people who commit crimes and then there's people who are victims of them but you know i clearly there are so many incarcerated folks who are victims of crime themselves
4: absolutely. and i'm
2: just curious what this what what
0: uh, mr norris thinks about how this mindset perpetuates the the framework of fear and you know what we can do to be more inclusive of the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated folks in our communities absolutely yeah there's a saying you know hurt people hurt people but also healed people heal people and um, and as Danielle Sered writes in her book um, uh, about violence, you know, violence um, doesn't just originate spontaneously. It is really um, poverty is violence, um, lack of opportunity is violence, and most people who uh, assault or harm someone else have themselves been harmed and hurt. Um, one example, I think, where we try to kind of flip the script on this narrative, was the creation of a report called "Who Pays the True Cost of Incarceration on Families." And what we did with that report is survey formerly incarcerated folks, their families, um, and really ask them about their experiences with violence. And um, over half of folks had been um, survivors of of crime themselves, and um, that, unfortunately, you know, uh, is uh, a story that doesn't get lifted up enough, but I'm appreciative of work of folks like Californians for Safety and Justice, among others, who have organized survivors of crime um, a- a- and formerly incarcerated folks to really bring, bring some of that work together in a way to say we all support a different vision of safety um, in California and across the country.
3: All right, let's get one more caller in here. Shabazz in Oakland, you're on.
2: Hey, good morning, great, great program. I would uh, just like to um, reach back in history a little bit. Uh, we we talked about institutions, you know, uh, juvenile institutions, even educational institutions. Uh, but I think that the most important institution is one that we've left in the dust, and that is the family. And um, uh, it seems that marriage and the family has been um, just a thing of the past. And um, and I don't think it's by ex- I don't think it's, it's by accident. I think it's um, uh, by design. And-
3: um, Shabazz, we're getting a little bit of bleeping with your your line, but I think we're, we've got the the gist of the comment. Zach Norris, do you have? I yeah, I the mean, the I couldn't
0: agree more. the 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 history of the country, the history of dehumanization in this country has always been intimately tied to family separation. Whether that is, you know, the sale of African people as 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 slaves in this country, whether that is, um, you know, the separation of families at our borders. Um, when you can isolate an individual from their family it is that much easier to scapegoat them, to blame them, uh, to uh, call them the super predator, to call uh, the mother the welfare queen, um, and really um, to, to dehumanize them in ways that um, undermine community safety and, quite frankly, have been used as a tool by the powerful. Right? Ian Haney Lopez talks about how race is used as a tool by the powerful to divide black, brown, and white people who have an interest in in the same things: uh, safe communities, good jobs, um, education for our children and grandchildren. But you know, the powerful few have um, uh, leveraged our fears of one another in ways that have allowed them to siphon incredible resources i mean unfathomable resources to themselves and then you know in the context of a global pandemic to say well your kids need to go back to school your you all need to go back to work meanwhile they're you know donald trump's son himself is, is not going back to school and has has distance learning so i think that ultimately This concept of, uh, not concept, this practice in this country of family separation has really been part and parcel of a larger othering of entire communities that really serves the interest of the greedy few in this country.
3: So in just our last couple minutes, I'd, I'd love to hear... Just the examples that are giving you hope in this time in communities getting this work done. I know you're also a co-founder of Restore Oakland, a community advocacy and training center, for example. Is that a model for other cities? Is there something like that already happening in other cities? Yeah. What's Yeah, what's um, inspiring you right now? Yeah,
0: Restore Oakland is an 18,000-square-foot BRICK AND MORTAR VISION OF WHAT WE BELIEVE COMMUNITY SAFETY LOOKS LIKE. I TALKED ABOUT THAT WHO PAYS REPORT AND A LOT OF THE uh, COVERAGE OF THAT REPORT WAS ABOUT THE PROBLEM BUT WE ALSO PROPOSED SOLUTIONS IN THAT REPORT. IT WAS COMMUNITY DRIVEN AND FOLKS SAID WE NEED HOUSING, WE NEED EMPLOYMENT OPPORTUNITIES, Believe in restorative and transformative justice, and um, we tried to bring those things together in one space um, because we we do believe that you know sometimes we lack imagination in this country. We've been had it so drilled into our heads that uh, prisons are the, the the archetype of of what makes safety. We wanted to create a different vision, and just as in the climate justice movement, you know, solar panels and wind turbines and. Those kinds of visible, tangible things, I think, have helped people understand that a different energy future is possible. We believe the same is true in terms of safety. And so we're building out that vision. Folks like Devon Bogan and the Richmond Office of Neighborhood Safety and so many others are, are building visions of what um, community safety look like. And ultimately, we are also holding our elected officials accountable to ensure they actually scale and resource those visions. And so one of the things that gives me hope is that there is this mass movement to move resources away from um, policing uh, and, and, and adopting a policing approach to every single public health issue in our cities and to actually moving resources to things that work. And so I described that, that Richmond program where Devon Bogan helped reduce violence dramatically by engaging young people in a a a mentorship program well you might think that then the city of richmond said oh we need to scale this up we need to put tens of millions of dollars behind it you might think that the obama administration would then have said oh we need to replicate this in city uh, cities across the country unfortunately that did not happen and still needs to happen and this social movement I'm calling for the defunding of the police and refunding our communities is what gives me hope that it will.
3: Well, thank you for sharing your vision with us today. That's Zach Norris, Executive Director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and author of We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. Thanks for coming on today.
0: Thank you, Ariana. I appreciate your time.
3: Thanks. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prale.